Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfi, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's March 2023. In this episode, we return to our series of discussions with the authors of the 2022 update of the Shea, IDSA, and APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare-Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals. In May and June of last year, we heard from the authors of the CLABSI and the ventilator-associated pneumonia, ventilator-associated events, and non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia practice recommendations. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with three of the authors of the hand hygiene practice recommendations that were published in this month's issue of ITCHY. My guests today are Dr. Kate Ellingson, an infectious disease epidemiologist and associate professor of public health, medicine, and animal and comparative biomedical sciences at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson, Arizona. Dr. Janet Glowitz, an infection preventionist on the hospital infection prevention team in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia and Dr. Emily Landon, an Associate Professor of Medicine and the Executive Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. I appreciate you all joining me today. Great. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I have to say that I really enjoyed reading your paper and that I learned a lot from it. In addition to providing formal updated recommendations, it's also a great review of recent studies related to hand hygiene. And I'll admit that I was made aware of several great studies that I had not previously seen. And I suspect the same will be true of many of our listeners as well. And so I definitely encourage everyone to read the full document and not just look at the table of recommendations. So Janet, can I ask you to help set the stage for our discussion by talking for a few minutes about the role of hand hygiene in infection prevention? Hand hygiene is such a great topic. It's the foundation of every other infection prevention measure in a healthcare setting. And it is, it's the basis of what we do. It's also such an enduring practice. CDC guidelines, the first ones were released 40 years ago. The, the ones that are currently posted on the HICPAC website are from 2002. And, and they're really very enduring guidelines. But it's terrific to be able to review the literature and see how things are evolving Practices are changing, hopefully improving. <laughs> but again, it's just, it is the foundation of infection prevention. Great. So, absolutely. And well, what do we know about how we're doing as a healthcare system in terms of performing hand hygiene at the moments and the opportunities when it should be done? So it's it's really hard to say because there is no national standard for how to collect that data. One of the studies that I liked showed that personnel cleaned their hands appropriately about 86% of the time, but they were struggling with technique. And when, when you really started looking at technique, adherence dropped off even as much as down to just over 7%. So I think we're doing a great job of encouraging personnel to clean their hands at appropriate times. And we need to really pay attention to how those hands are cleaned and the technique as well as the indications. Well, it certainly seems like this is an important topic for us to be discussing today and one for which opportunities for improvement continue to exist. And so with that in mind, let's focus on the updated hand hygiene practice recommendation document. 
In an earlier episode, the compendium leads, Lisa Maragakis and Debbie Yakoa, talked to us about the general approach that was used in these 2022 updates to all of the compendium documents. But I'd love to hear about the team you worked with and how the updated hand hygiene recommendations were developed. I think we had a fantastic team. I just so appreciate the folks who participated. They came from across the United States, a variety of universities and different disciplines. We had participation from the Association of Perioperative Nurses. We had professors, system directors, just a variety of professionals, people with expertise in measurement like Dr. Polgreen. We pulled literature twice, actually. We began in 2019 and we were looking at 2014 to 2019. And then, of course, with the pandemic and the disruption that occurred just to all of healthcare, we pulled data again, looking at 2020 as we review the literature for this update. Great. So I think one other thing that might be helpful for our listeners is to review some of the terminology that's being used in all of the updated compendium papers. And most importantly, I think, is the terminology used to categorize the recommendations, which has changed since the 2014 updates. So can one of you review that for us? There are a few changes since the 2014 guideline and recommendations in this document are categorized as essential practices. And these are really foundational for all HAI programs in acute care hospitals. In 2014, we called these basic practices and we really just renamed these to highlight their foundational nature. Some of the recommendations in this document are also called additional approaches, and those can be considered for certain locations or certain situations or populations within hospitals or during outbreaks when HAIs are not controlled after implementation of these essential practices. Great. And I think back in 2014, we called those special approaches. So same idea, but just different terminology. Exactly. Yeah. Great. So we'll talk about the details of the specific recommendations shortly, but speaking for myself, at least, and I suspect for many others, I'm really interested to hear what you think are perhaps the most notable or important changes that were made during this round of updates. So many of the practices are kind of fine-tuned from previous documents, but there are two new practices that we added. And really, we were looking at some of the risks associated with hand hygiene, as well as the benefits. So we did add an essential practice related to glove use. And that is practice number four, ensuring appropriate glove use to reduce hand and environmental contamination, recognizing that gloves are very important when caring for patients with, say, C. difficile, yet when they are not doffed appropriately or when they are worn for prolonged use during the course of care, they can result in increased environmental contamination. So we really wanted to address that and link it directly to hand hygiene. And then the second essential practice that is new relates to environmental contamination associated with sinks and sink drains. And we really turned to outbreak literature for that and looked at outbreaks of ESBL, Elizabeth Kenya, other organisms associated with sinks and sink drains. Great. So it sounds like in addition to updating and revising the previous recommendations based on new data, really the scope of the recommendations themselves has expanded to include additional topics that we might not necessarily think about in our hand hygiene programs, but are definitely relevant to those programs. 
And so I think you mentioned that there were a number of essential practices, I think it's seven total essential practices, each of those that contain several elements or you know, sub-recommendations or something like that. Can you walk us through the highlights of those essential recommendations or essential practices? So we wanted to start off with the promotion of healthy hand, skin, and fingernails. And some of those look like they may be new practices. It's really, those are not new practices, but we wanted to really emphasize the preferential use of alcohol-based hand sanitizer, knowing that it is protective of the skin for healthcare personnel hands. And then we framed some of the information about fingernails a little bit differently, just saying that they should be short and natural, that they should not extend past the fingertip. And then when it comes to fingernail polish, of course, chipped polish should it should always be prohibited, but we did leave it to the discretion of facilities regarding the use of gel shellac or fingernail polish. And that tends to generate a lot of discussion, but the recommendations are just framed a little bit differently, framed more positively. We would still not want to see artificial fingernails, acrylic nails, but we described what we want to see, which is short, natural nails. Yeah, I was interested. I thought it was fascinating that the promoting healthy hand, skin, and fingernails was the number one in the list of recommendations. And but you provide some pretty compelling data about the skin health of our healthcare workers and cite some studies from a number of countries looking at relatively high rates of eczema and skin irritation and damage. So this really does seem like it should be the, the number one thing that we think about in our hand hygiene programs because if people are finding that their skin is irritated and chafed from hand washing and things that really addressing that is going to be critical, improving hand hygiene. And that was a study from the UK and over, they surveyed a little over a thousand healthcare personnel, and I believe about 50% said that their skin was in poor condition because of their work. And so every hand in healthcare is important. Yeah, this is Emily. I'm just going to add in that in real everyday practice, when working on getting people to clean their hands in a real hospital, you know, as the adherence to hand hygiene goes up, we often hear more about different eczema or atopic dermatitis problems on hands. Some of that is because of a misunderstanding that somehow washing soap and water is going to be easier on your skin than using alcohol-based hand sanitizer, which is not the case. And some of it is because of just allergies or incompatibilities with the product that we choose. And like we recommend in the compendium, it's really important to identify those individuals and offer them an appropriate hand sanitizing formula that's going to work for them. Great. And this is Kate, I would just add in terms of a major difference from the 2014 update, we really centered the resilience of healthcare worker hands essentially in this update. And not only is that because we have some additional studies, but just also recognizing the importance of engaging healthcare workers and selection of the right products that are going to maintain the integrity of the skin and really kind of shifting to this sort of resilience mindset and ensuring that, that our healthcare personnel are central in that. So what are some of the other essential practices included in the new guideline? Well, I'll just say that the next one is the selecting of appropriate products, which is really important. And there was a lot of new evidence that came out, especially during the pandemic or the worst parts of the pandemic where, and I think Janet has a lot more specific information about this, 
But there were a lot of sort of alternate products created, and that gave an opportunity to study some of these, including some accidental methanol that can be added to hand sanitizer. So it's really important to know what's in your hand sanitizer product because one is not the same as another. Triclosan does not belong in healthcare worker um, hand sanitizer formulations or in layperson hand sanitizer formulations. And you have to think very carefully about the percent um, alcohol in your hand sanitizer formulation because it can be better or worse depending on the pathogens that you're targeting and what's happening. But really just a high quality alcohol-based hand sanitizer that's amenable, that is tolerated well by your people is going to work the best. Also, producers, manufacturers, a hand sanitizer are not allowed to make claims, prevention claims associated with their products. And so different hand sanitizers have different excipient or inactive ingredients that may change the effectiveness of the alcohol, and the manufacturer should have that data. So there may be some hand sanitizers that are more effective against C. difficile and norovirus or adenovirus, you know. And so just making sure that your manufacturer, that you have a, a working relationship with them and that they can provide you with that data, they are not allowed to market that data. Yeah, a real life example there in our ophthalmology clinic, we have fewer sinks than we'd really like to have given the epidemic keratoconjunctivitis issues that are sometimes seen in ophthalmology. And we use a different hand sanitizer from our usual brand in the ophthalmology clinic in order to specifically target and make sure that we're getting the best product for that particular eventuality. We still require that people wash their hands after caring for patients that have EKC, but that does go a long way toward, we've seen a reduction in issues since we started doing that many years ago now. But that's a good example of using this data and using the literature to help determine those things since they can't claim it on their label. Fantastic. I think that's a great kind of segue into the next recommendation, which is ensuring the accessibility of hand hygiene supplies. I think one of the interesting things here is, and I think it's new, is the provision of minimum thresholds for the number of alcohol-based hand sanitizer dispensers in healthcare facilities. Can you tell us what your group came up with in terms of those uh, minimum thresholds? So we, we cited a study in which they had, it was an itchy study, <laughs> in which they had placed additional hand sanitizers in patient care areas. And I think they placed numerous hand sanitizers in the workflow of personnel. But once they had one hand sanitizer dispenser in the hallway and one hand sanitizer dispenser in the room, they really saw that they achieved the maximum adherence to performing hand hygiene at the appropriate indications. And so we used that as a minimum threshold, one alcohol-based hand sanitizer dispenser in the hallway within access, you know, as you enter that room, and then one in the patient room. Also, I think one of the important recommendations is that the hand sanitizer dispensers be highly visible and unambiguous. You shouldn't have to look for the hand sanitizer dispenser. It should be right in your workflow and you should, you know, just walk into it, <laughs> but it needs to be right there where you see it. Adherence to hand cleaning improves when dispensers are highly visible and unambiguous. Well, I think the next recommendation is the one of the newer ones that you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, which is related to glove use. And so maybe this is a good moment to elaborate a little bit on some of the information recommendations contained in that one. So we really looked at appropriate glove use. And I think the study that we really enjoyed 
it was actually done in long-term care and they looked at what items were most frequently touched with contaminated gloves. And they found that disinfectant wipes, patient care, antiseptics, and durable medical equipment like wheelchairs were most commonly touched with gloved hands. So we wanted to include information about making sure that you're doing hand hygiene immediately when you doff the gloves and doffing those gloves at appropriate times. And ensuring that people know how to doff the gloves without getting their hands contaminated. It's shocking. There are a number of studies about that. And we have, I have experience with this in our, we switched to doing this project with our new employee orientation. We give them Cheetos and gloves and we tell them to eat the Cheetos with the gloves and then figure out how to get there and then show them how to take the gloves off and let them see how many people still have orange fingers after they have removed their gloves. It's sort of like a highlight of new employee orientation, but it also gives people, an, it's not perfect, not as good as the glow powder, of course, but it certainly gives people an idea about and some experience actually removing their gloves properly. And I think that that kind of education we're seeing more and more in these studies about having really good methods of getting these points that we're covering these main topics here into the heads of the healthcare workers in a durable way. And that I think is part of each of these sections, but I'll just highlight it here. I think that's a great training opportunity and technique. I like that a lot better than the other types of fluorescent markers you can use for training hand hygiene. I love that. Great. I think it's the a next... Lot cheaper. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> It's a lot less expensive. So, and I guess now if we want to talk about the next recommendation, which is the other new one, which addresses environmental contamination associated with sinks and drains, which I think we're recognizing as being more and more important. So let's hear a little bit more about that one too. The study that I enjoy the most related to that one looked at how many interactions at a sink in an intensive care unit involved hand washing. And I believe only 4% of the times healthcare personnel interacted with the sink, they were actually washing their hands. Other times they were draining tube feedings down the sink or draining IV bags into the sink. I know when we are on site, many times for water-associated pathogens or pathogens of premise plumbing, we see a lot of crowding around the sink, supplies, patient care supplies paced right next to the sink, definitely giving opportunities for aerosolization and splashing to contaminate those supplies. So Janet, you use some terminology that might not be familiar to all of us. I think you said pathogens of premise plumbing. Can you describe what those are for those of us who aren't using that terminology yet? CDC has a great website. It's called Reduce Risk from Water. There's a nice list of those pathogens on that website. But the ones that come to mind are pseudomonas, you know, your gram-negative rods. There is a nice article that was published while we were working on this in emerging infectious diseases. And it is about a faucet in an intensive care unit that was contaminated with Vim pseudomonas. And the entire faucet, the handle, all the components of the faucet yielded varying amounts of Vim pseudomonas, but the the contamination was quite extensive. And so those gram-negative antibiotic-resistant organisms are often pathogens of premise plumbing. I just want to apologize first to all the hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists out there that are listening to this who have not yet begun to read about or face these pathogens in real life. 
since the last compendium came out, there have been a number of outbreaks associated with them. And this is one of the things that keeps me awake at night. I worry all the time when there's a transient increase in the number of pseudomonas infections or something, maybe a couple patients with the same thing in the burn unit. I think, oh my God, what if it's in the pipes? And we've begun to like sort of look at those things and do swabs and sampling from those areas every time we have any sniff of an outbreak. They're so challenging to fix that I think they really do belong here. There's really no other compendium where these these things are going to be, I guess. I mean, they could be causing a device-related infection or VAP or any of those things. But what we really need is a place to talk about how to mitigate that. And it's often the hand hygiene sinks that are the problem. And I strongly recommend those of you, and apologize in advance, that have not worked on this before, to take a moment to read about these and, and begin to understand and do an assessment of the risk in your own hospital that I was most struck by the moving supplies away from the sink. That's not something that I had really done a lot with here, but there's pretty good evidence that you need to make sure that that's not happening because those things can become contaminated. So I think this is a really important addition and I hope that everyone takes that to heart and worries about it like I do. Sorry. As an infection preventionist, often you conduct a water risk assessment and you may recommend splash guards near the sink. And we say not to put medications or patient care supplies within three feet of the sinks. Splash guards can help mitigate that, but it's very hard to get buy-in among the plant operations because it's not really going to come from the infection prevention budget. It's going to come from the facilities budget. And so I hope that this recommendation helps infection preventionists get buy-in from those other departments that are responsible for installing that equipment. Yeah, it's certainly a lot cheaper than replumbing. Well, I think now maybe we can talk about the sixth essential practice, which is monitoring adherence to hand hygiene. And I think, Kate, maybe that's one that you can walk us through a little bit. Sure. So I'll start us off by saying that when the first compendium was published in 2014, we were beginning to see the proliferation of these automated hand hygiene monitoring systems, which were really capable of characterizing hand hygiene opportunities, and then adherence through use of hand hygiene dispensers. And one of the, the most fascinating studies with this updated review was published in 2021 and really showed that at a 400-bed hospital during COVID-19, there were 1.5 to 2.5 million hand hygiene opportunities each month. So that just kind of emphasizes that the scale and the task of monitoring these is really can be really overwhelming. And one of the things that this compendium does we have a table that looks at the different types of hand hygiene monitoring from sort of the old school direct observation, either overt or cohort, to these new automated hand hygiene monitoring system, remote video observation, using the patient as an observer, or some indirect methods that really look at usage. And we really urge our readers to look at the strengths and weaknesses of each and consider adopting into your program a mix of several different types, given that certain types of observations are much more amenable to sort of individualized feedback on technique, et cetera. Whereas others are more amenable to this sort of aggregate feedback where you can break down by, you know, different word types, et cetera. Some other studies that we looked at that were really fascinating were looking sort of, for example, on surgical units. One study found that there were about 72 hand hygiene opportunities per patient day with more occurring on the first shift during the second shift. And this type of data really kind of puts into perspective the enormity of this task and how many different and frequent hand hygiene opportunities there are in a given day or a given shift. 
And I think this is a great time. Emily, I want to turn it over to you because I think we can, having data is great and it's an important first step, but then you'd have to do something with the data in order to make improvements. And I think that's your final essential practice is related to providing feedback. So can you? Yeah. And I just, I want to, I'm going to add on a little bit to what Kate has said about monitoring systems. We have an automated monitoring system in all of our inpatient beds at the University of Chicago and have since 2014. It's an aggregate monitoring system. We were a pretty early adopter of this. It doesn't look at whether or not Mark Smith washed their hands going into or out of a room, but it counts as the denominator, the number of human beings walking into or leaving a room, so entering and exiting, and it counts how many hand hygiene events take place using both the soap and the alcohol-based hand sanitizer. And it's been really, really huge for us. We have over 100,000 opportunities each day for hand hygiene just associated with entries and exits of rooms in our 700-bed hospital. And that is a magnitude of hand hygiene that I could not have imagined. The calculations that I did to justify buying the system were way under what we actually found once we actually implemented it. And it has given us a granularity and the ability to take a look at what's happening with hand hygiene every day of the week, every week of the year, night shifts versus day shifts. And while we don't, I mean, we'd love to upgrade to a system that tells us each individual, there is a real advantage to doing this from a team method. And it's really come down to each unit acting as a team to change their behavior for hand hygiene. The particular system that we have has a monitor, computer monitor that gives real-time data about the hand hygiene on that unit that is center at every nursing station and every unit in our hospital. And that's the beginning of what we have is our seventh thing that you were asking about, David, and that is the feedback part, which is essential. We collect all this data, even hospitals that do not use automated monitoring, that do direct observation, especially with the new leapfrog rules and requirements are doing more observations, more assessments of hand hygiene compliance than they have ever done before. And then they're saying, well, what do I do with this? Some of the times those numbers look really high, especially if you're doing mostly direct observation, they may be higher than what they look like if you're doing automated monitoring for a variety of reasons we can get into anytime in the future. But the important thing to know is that that data doesn't do any good unless it gets into the hands of the people that are actually washing their hands. I, as the hospital epidemiologist, cannot wash anyone's hands for them. Each individual has to figure out how to do it for themselves. And they need that feedback in a way that's not punitive, but that really meets them where they're at and helps them to chart their own course of improvement. And I think that's what we're seeing in the data, in the feedback, the studies that are included in the feedback section here. There's a lot of talk about how to get that into the hands of the actual person that's washing their hands. But no matter how many studies we have, it's really, really hard to study whether or not someone believes it and acts on it. And that's the part where you really need to make sure that the local leadership is not just getting the feedback in an email and sending it off to people, but really is interacting with people to talk about the hand hygiene and what they think about the numbers and how it's going. And that is, honestly, no matter how hard I try, it's really difficult to study that for me and for everyone else. You can't standardize a manager going to talk to everybody on the unit or going over it at their meeting or having talking about it at the 
huddle. You can make them do it, but there's that's different than really getting the buy-in and the engagement, which makes the biggest difference in terms of the changes in performance, at least in my experience. But the data is very clear. Everyone that could possibly know about hand hygiene, both down the chain and up the chain, needs to see that data and they need to see it as frequently as you can give it out and in as meaningful a way as is possible. And that means hearing back from those people that are receiving the feedback about what they want and how you can make that feedback better. Fantastic. I think it's definitely something for all of us to take away from that. And so what we've been talking about so far have all been considered foundational practices for all hospitals, but you also provide additional approaches that can be used, particularly seems like during outbreaks is when these seem to be most applicable or where they're directed. And so what are those additional strategies that you've provided in the 2022 update? So there are three. And the first one is about using a structured approach to teach hand hygiene or hand sanitizing, hand washing technique. And CDC generally recommends general use application. Just make sure you get enough, cover all surfaces of your hands. But if you're seeing problems with technique, then you may want in your orientation or if you're doing education on a particular unit to really look at the palms of the hands, the back of the hands, the fingertips and the thumbs, and make sure that personnel are really covering all areas of their hands, depending on what you see. The second one I'll speak about is using EPA-registered disinfectants with claims against biofilms if you are attempting to remediate a water-associated pathogen. Those are new on the market. That is a claim that was just put forward by the EPA. So anecdotally, what we hear about people doing is putting some bleach down the drain to try and clear it of whatever pathogen they may be dealing with. And we really don't know how that will affect the biofilm of the drain. It could have some harmful effects. We really don't know. But there are now EPA processes for registering those disinfectants. And then finally, the third additional approach was included in the last compendium, and that is encouraging hand washing with soap and water after the care of patients with known or suspected C. difficile or norovirus, and that is a longstanding recommendation. Great. Thank you. And you also outlined several approaches or strategies that should not be considered part of routine hand hygiene programs. What are some of those key strategies that we shouldn't be using that we should be aware of? First of all, for individual pocket-sized dispensers of alcohol-based hand sanitizer, there's kind of mixed data about whether those actually improve hand hygiene or not. And so there may be instances where they are needed. For example, behavioral health, when alcohol-based hand sanitizer needs to remain in the control of the healthcare personnel, but those should not be provided to healthcare workers in lieu of wall-mounted dispensers. So if you can have a wall-mounted dispenser, you should have a wall-mounted dispenser. During the pandemic at CDC, we heard about refilling of alcohol-based hand sanitizer dispensers. I can't say that we really... Um, had outbreaks associated with that. But just generally, we know that alcohol-based hand sanitizer is not effective against spores and you could potentially have contamination of your sanitizer through refilling of dispensers. Emily already mentioned that triclosan should not be used as an active ingredient. During the pandemic, we heard a lot about double gloving 
And the research that we looked at on that had to do with contamination of hands despite double gloving. So there are certain jobs in which it's recommended, for example, preparing chemotherapy agents. But if, if it's not specifically recommended for that job, then double gloving is not something that should be routinely done. Healthcare personnel should remove their gloves and do hand hygiene, clean their hands. They should not disinfect their gloves during care. And then when there's known C. difficile or norovirus in the healthcare environment, alcohol-based hand sanitizer should still be accessible. Nobody should remove it in an attempt to get people to wash their hands instead. You need to have access to it even during an outbreak. And lastly, the last approach that should not be considered a part of routine hand hygiene is that disinfection of drains with agents that lack that EPA registration. Great. Thanks, Janet. So in addition to providing all these specific practice, practice recommendations that you've been discussing with us, all of the compendium documents also include a section on implementation strategies to assist facilities with putting these recommendations into practice, which is what we want to do. So are there implementation strategies that you and your team thought could be particularly helpful for facilities that are trying to improve hand hygiene? Yeah, this is Emily again. I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think that implementation is the biggest unresolved issue in hand hygiene. Going from knowing what to do and then actually doing it 150, 100 times a day is like really a big gap. And it can be really challenging. So the four E's are, we use the four E's in this document, as do others. They engage, educate, execute, and evaluate. And I just want to point out that all four need to be used. I think we do a good job of getting teams together to talk about hand hygiene. And the document, the compendium goes through exactly that you need to include all the key stakeholders. There's evidence that that works and that you need to get everybody together. You need to be frequently, all of that. And then education. We've talked a little bit about educating about the quality of hand hygiene, about making sure people actually are doing it properly, about not using gloves in lieu of hand hygiene. Those things are really important to get across to people. And then we talked a lot about the evaluating or the measuring of the hand hygiene. All those things are covered in the rest of the document, but the execute part is really hard. It's really short. And there are some studies that talk about it, but there's not as much as we would like to see or that I wish we had to talk about how to get this stuff done. You can't checklist hand hygiene. You can't just tack a checklist on a bundle and ask people to just check everything off as they go. You can't hard stop it or even soft stop it in the electronic medical record. You have to literally coach people through it from every activity in their day. My experience doing a decade-long project looking at how to get healthcare workers to wash their hands, which we haven't even finished yet, is that it's all about behavior change and that it's very different. Different settings, different physical spaces, different units different teams, different individuals. My experiences, and I wish there was more data for this experience, which we're working on in our decade-long project, is about you can't just do one thing and expect it to work everywhere. And so you really have to tailor your execution plan to the people that are going to be executing on it. And you can't just do engage, educate, and evaluate. You have to do that execute part. That's putting up the signs, working with the teams, it's having contests, it's having them remind each other. Your frontline leaders, the managers of the units, the managers in your EVS teams, the medical directors are not natural born hand hygiene coaches. They need advice, 
and they need help in figuring out how to do that on a daily basis. It's a thorny and tricky problem for them. And they need your guidance and your help and your encouragement to get that work done. And so I wouldn't skimp on the execute part. And I would encourage all my colleagues and everyone working in this space to do more studies about the execute part of it and to talk more about their experience with execute. Great. Well, I think that is a great place to kind of end our discussion of this great new update on hand hygiene practices for healthcare facilities. And I'll end with how we normally end the podcast, which is to ask all of our participants to give our listeners an action item or a practical tip that they can take away from this podcast and put into practice in their own facility immediately, or if not immediately, in the very near term to really help people start making change now. So with that in mind, what tip or advice would you give to someone who's trying to improve hand hygiene within their facility? I'll go ahead and go first. Thanks, so Janet. Think, thanks. You can't do hand hygiene if you don't have access to supplies. So first and foremost, take a fresh look at where your hand sanitizer dispensers are located. Make sure that they're getting an adequate amount. I've seen healthcare personnel go to the hand sanitizer dispenser and get just barely enough to cover their palms. So make sure that you've got those dispensers and that they dispense an adequate amount. That would be my very first thing that I would do. How about you, Kate? I would just say, depending on your healthcare facility, hand hygiene resources or baseline knowledge might be really different. And I think that piece that we've emphasized in this document about engaging the healthcare workers, asking them what their challenges are when it comes to tolerability of whatever kind of product you're using when it comes to their challenges. So just that that sort of engagement piece would be my overarching piece of advice. And Emily? I would say do something today that increases awareness. Preview. In my decade of working with this automated monitoring system and working with individual units, some units get it right right away. Some units really aren't very good at it. But the difference between the really good units and the really not as great units is that they do a lot of stuff on the good units. They may not get to the one thing that's going to make a big difference, but they talk about it a lot. They change their signs up if they don't think they're working. They put in, they talk about it at their huddles. They do like a teaching about hand hygiene. They've got somebody going around talking about hand hygiene. So the thing I would say is spend five minutes every day, today and every day doing anything about hand hygiene, just getting somebody to make a new sign, to put a, to uh, send out an email to your leaders, get it put on people's huddles, go to a unit and just talk to people about hand hygiene for five minutes. Anything you do will improve hand hygiene and even a small improvement in hand hygiene will reduce the risk of, of HAI for all the patients. Great advice. Thank you all. And thanks again for the tremendous amount of time and effort that you and your colleagues put into updating the hand hygiene recommendations, and also to the three of you for spending time with us today to talk about them. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of Itchy. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Itchy Podcast. 